These days, it's very hard to lead anything without a community of people behind you. My guest this week has been working with communities for the last 30 years and has discovered some surprising truths about how communities thrive and operate at their best. You'd think that these truths would be common knowledge by now, but when they go against received wisdom and they look so simple, it's easy to see how they can get lost in all the doing everyone is trying to get done. I'm Julia Rebholtz. Welcome to Generative Leaders. So I'm Gary. I now live in Stockport in Greater Manchester. Um, I began life, oh, 54 years ago in a place called Colliers, which is on the cusp of um, Manchester City Centre. It's um, a really nice place um, where I grew up, but I lived in like um, the most deprived neighbourhood, apparently, as it's called. And then we moved in 1977 up to the neighbouring um, community, as that community that we lived in in Colliers was being demolished around us and rebuilt as um, a new housing estate and a new place to live. Um, and that was a really sort of big change for me. Um, I was only eight years old. I'd been gone to a new community. I had to go to a new school find new friends, leave old friends. And I think that's lasted with me for quite some time, uh, that, that change. So I lived in the new neighbourhood till I was 24 with my parents, um, left school at the age of 15. and didn't really know what I was going to do, where I was going to go. College wasn't really an option. Um, it was basically get a job and um, contribute to the housekeeping and you do whatever you can to make that, to make that happen. So I went from various jobs, from packing in factories, working in bars, working in restaurants. I actually went and worked in Butlins for a, for a season down in Perfelli in Wales. So I was really sort of on this journey of not knowing what direction or where I was going, etc. And I knew that there was something more inside of me, but I didn't know quite what it was. And then I decided, actually, I'm going to go back to college. I'm going to get some education. And about 1999, where I lived in East Manchester, in Openshaw at the time, just close to the city centre, the city centre and the Manchester City Football Club now, which wasn't there at all. I lived in a two-up, two-down, back-to-back terrace with my partner. It was considered one of the most deprived neighbourhoods in the country, and the government had announced a new programme called New Deal for Communities, which was 39 programmes across England to regenerate um, neighbourhoods such as the places where I live, Beswick, Clayton and Openshaw. And I'd seen a lot of TV and um, media coverage about this programme and I got curious about, well, what does it mean for residents? What does it mean, actually mean, what does it, what does it, got, what does it mean beyond, beyond what it says on the tin? Yeah, so now I'm working for Our Happiness Factor, which is a community interest company, which means it's not for profit. And our work really still stems on um, working in communities that um, are often described or prescribed in ways that are not um, well-serving. So language such as um, deprivation, poverty, high levels of crime, etc., etc., which really build up a picture in people's minds about people and places um, and how they may live their lives. Um, and often the people that have built up those pictures have never actually experienced um, connecting with somebody in a community 
um, or they may have some preconceived ideas based on the data that they, 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 they read or the stories that they read in the newspapers. So that really, for me, is like getting the surface structure of a community. Um, so literally now what we're doing is we work with local people, we connect with them in, and bring them into trainings and help them explore or look, together explore what their potential is for change what it is they want to change on a personal level, if they want to change anything on a um, community level or an organisational level or if they want to influence the system in any way, that's completely on the board. And what we've done is we've said we're not going to restrict our work to neighbourhoods that are considered deprived. We're going to open that up because we want it to become an organisation without boundaries so, it, you know, a person who may live in an affluent in a neighbourhood and a person who lives in a not what's prescribed as a poor neighbourhood, there's no reason why those people, those two women or two men or group can not come together and share a common space and explore what it is they want to bring in, into the world to, you know, for, for, for themselves or community. So that real sort of sense of who creates borders where do these borders exist and why do we have these borders that tend to often separate people rather than bring, bring people together? And Gary, what, what, how, what, how would you describe a community? What does a community look like to you? Mm, that's a good question. So I would say communities are grown in neighbourhoods. And neighbourhoods are the places where people live, where people work, where people play, and how connections are made between between human beings. So I would call a neighbourhood, I'll see a neighbourhood, and then I see people in community in a neighbourhood. And that, for me, the best way I can describe that now is a living system. It's a living system of people. It's not an industry of hogs. It's, a, it's human connections that go on. And under the radar, under the perceived radar, there are more people connecting than meet the eye. There are more people doing amazing things in communities than they're often given credit for. And for me, a community in a neighbourhood is something where people are together and using and bringing their resources that they have available to them to the surface and making change where change might be necessary or not. And so, you know, if we think about kind of different types of communities that exist now, we've got physical communities, but we've also got online communities. We've got, so is your, is your sense of it that place where people connect to do things together that they wouldn't do on their own? Yeah, of course. And that can be very formal or informal. That's that's the beauty of it. It can be online space and, and you know, physical space. Um, and, yeah, but people connect and socialise and they do things together and, you know, bring bring new 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 organisations into our community that weren't there before based on their interests. It may be some people are focused on tackling some issues that might be climate, it might be family issues, etc., etc. And that common purpose brings people together, that common sense of I need to do something about X or I want to do something or I'm inspired to do something um, to, to, to make shift and change in the community. 
And I guess fundamentally, a community online or offline is made up of humans who are either living in the place or they're working in the place or they're socialising in the place. And for me, that's what I like to see a community as, as humans and not people with labels, because I think the labels can get in the way. That's obviously like a core fundamental piece is not labelling the human beings. And what are some of the other things that you've learned about community building and how, how, a, how a community can flourish? Well, one thing I've learned about community building is if you really, if you really pull back the lens and you really, really take that focus back, you will see that our communities are more abundant than they are deficit and that there's lots going on in communities that doesn't meet the eye. Um, so I've learned that people are well-connected, um, despite the narrative often about loneliness and isolation. There's people who are helping people out on a daily basis, whether that's putting a bin out for somebody who's at work and taking it back in, as simple as that, whether it's knocking on a neighbour's door to make sure they're okay, whether that's um, taking a meal for somebody um, who might need a meal up the road and doing that on, on that stuff. And you know, a great example where I used to live, there was a woman who was a friend of mine. She was in her 70s. She walked to work as a, in, to the hospital every day um, and walked back. And if we met each other on the street, we would talk for a while, we'd have a hug and we'd have a laugh. And that's the sort of spirit that's already exists, that already exists in, in places, but it's often sort of veiled over um, for another story. So all of that, that connection, and I'm not saying everybody's connected, but there's a more connection than disconnection. And when you tap into that connection in a community, amazing things can happen because you start to work with the energy of the community rather than agenda of an organisation. If you, for me, if I was, when I work with communities or I work with organisations, I will encourage them to always go to, a, if you're invited to a community to work with them, always go with a blank mind, no, no preconceptions, um, go with questions, don't go with solutions because the solutions will be found and your solutions, well, may not work in the community because we've seen that decade after decade, time after time. And I guess when it's organisations working in communities, not you know, public sector organisations, they're often driven by things like indices of multiple deprivation, joint needs the joint needs strategic assessments which all were always always even since the 1970s when the indices of multiple deprivation was introduced always identify the problems and the deficits of the community and if you look back over time even to the present day and you look at the stats and you look at the changes that have happened socially and systemically very little has ever changed very little has ever changed because it's still the same neighbourhoods in the same parts of the country that still are suffering or experiencing the same problems and same issues as they were maybe 50 years ago when I came into the planning colliers. And I think for me, for change to happen, there has to be a new question and a new perspective taken 
to community and actually doing a workshop tomorrow with some public service officers. And as I was um, thinking about what to talk about, one of the biggest issues that they deal with in the city is to a cost of a lot of money is people fly tipping rubbish in communities and dumping it in places where people live and this has been an ongoing issue since I started working 20 years ago and if not before and it still continues so I started to think about that this morning and get getting curious about it and the question that I was gonna gonna be asking um, the team tomorrow is something along the lines of who lives closest to the problem and where might you find the solution if you think about the people living closest to the problem? So I'm interested and keen to see what that sparks. Because for me, the people living closest to the problem are the people who live in the neighbourhood. And often the people in the neighbourhood are the last people we go and seek a solution from. And we use expertise and um, experts to try and figure it out and solve the issue. And that's just one example of fly tipping. You could take that across the board. If you go to community, you connect with community, you're more likely to find solutions that you haven't thought about and that will come from the community and will get buy-in from the community because that's somebody that's raising it out, raising it in their own interest. And over the years, I've realised and I've talked to organisations about this and I realised for myself that actually it's not the community that needs to change. It's organisations that need to change who work in communities. They need to take a new approach, need to think about new ways of connecting with people. So the change, for me, should start with the organisation looking inwards before they start to look outwards. And it's it's interesting, isn't it, Gary, because... If you think about an organisation, it doesn't exist either. No. It's a group of human beings. So you've got one group of human beings trying to help another group of human beings with completely different perspectives about what works, what makes sense, who are not communicating or connecting with one another. Or or, or when they are, there may be things that appear to get in the way. So the system itself isn't geared up to respond to the requirements of the community. And again, part of tomorrow is about exploring systems and what our systems are created. And what I've learned and in, in you know in the few in the last few years is well exactly what you've said about an organization. A lot of people in the organization or in the system think the system and organization is a thing, a living thing. And they associate and attribute human characteristics to it, personalities and, you know, my, the system is broken. Well, where's it broken? Can you bring me the broken bit? Because if you can, that would be really cool. So there's this sort of idea that systems are things and systems are not things. They're only humans thinking up systems, trying to solve their own problems <laughs> that they've thought up in the first place. <laughs> so I guess that's the challenge of the status quo is, are you listening? That would be a really good thing to go ask the question to ask. Are you really, 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 really listening? Or are you paying lip service? Or are you going to do what you was going to do anyway, regardless of what the community says they did or they didn't want, whether that's on a micro scale or a macro scale? Um, and not to... 
not to generalize too much to say that everybody in a system working in a system isn't doing hasn't got the great will to do good stuff sometimes they're just bound by the bureaucracy and the bureaucracy doesn't lend itself to a living system in a community it doesn't lend itself at all because people want to do stuff they don't want to have to wait for permission to do stuff that they want to do now um and part of the work that we did at the community foundation was to see how we could um, be different how we could change our status challenge our status quo and we wanted people to feel that they were coming to to a friend who might have some resources to um, help us get our ideas into the world and we certainly didn't want them to feel like they were coming to a bank um, that somehow we were giving them a handout rather than a hand up and then so that sort of leveled our relationship with the community very quickly because we again shifted our internal structures as humans that influenced the external structures as an organization and one of the pioneering things that we we created was um a small pot of money to invest into the ideas of local people now the beauty of it was that we didn't want the bureaucracy. We didn't want people jumping through hoops. We made it between £50 and £250 um, for your idea, your project that you could bring to, into the world. Um, the only requirement that we had is that you could bring four other people around your project and it had to be a new idea from a new group of people. So traditionally, if you're accessing funding through the voluntary sector, you're required to have a committee, you're required to have a bank account, you're required to um, hold meetings and have um, due diligence and all of that. That goes with applying for money that is given to the public by the public purse or raised through charities. And we said, what if we didn't do that? What if <laughs> we just said there's no requirement whatsoever for you to have a formal structure, a formal organisation, that your idea is what we're interested in. And as long as you can bring that the idea into the world, we'll invest up to £250 into your idea. What if we could just strip back all of that? So we tested that and we made the application really, really simple. It was one-page application. We got some internal pushback from people who felt it was a really unsafe things to do and how can you just give people £250 and with no sort of due diligence and da 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 da, da whatever that, that narrative was going on. And then we got to, I got to thinking about it and, and in the end, after about the third or fourth conversation about it, I was like, where, where are people going with 250 quid? What, what are they going to do? Go off to Australia? And actually... What that says to me is we're building trust. We're building trust in the people who often from the outside don't know, don't receive a lot of trust based on perceptions. So we tested it and it was a huge success. We got lots of little projects. By the time I'd left after launching it in two years, there'd been over 120 projects funded. Nobody ran off with the money. And the community started to say the feedback that we got from people in the community was, you trust us, you're handing over money and there's no bureaucracy with it. So when we worked with Leicester NHS, we helped them set up their own funding programme in a similar way. 
I'd gone down and trained them, some of their frontline health staff on a two-day training course, two lots of teams, and then they got their own small grants program up and running. And then about 20 months later, I received a message on LinkedIn from one of the officers who was on the training, and she admitted herself, Gary, I was the most resistant person on that training. <laughs> everything you said flew in the flat flew in the face of everything i believed was about community and community development and at the time she just took over as the manager of a local health hub and she said to me in that in that message on linkedin i took over that health hub 20 months ago and we were getting something like 800 people coming through the door so a year 800 people that was it she said in 20 months we've just hit 10,000 users and of the small projects in two wards or three wards, there's 56 new projects that have come out that have cost no more than 250 quid. So it started to spread along. And that whole idea of connecting with people on a human level, going with a blank piece of paper, a blank mind, and exploring what's in the community really is powerful and can change a place. So the example up in Oldham where we worked for a year and then another year in the first 10 months of the community builder working with the community, the projects that the community brought through themselves from community orchards to community cafes to We Fit Nights or whatever that might be. Within 10 months, the housing association who owned the properties on the estate reported that overall environmental crime had reduced to zero. They'd had no reports of fly tipping. They'd had no reports of vandalism. They'd had no reports of any graffiti. Um, and that estate literally had 420 homes on it when we started. The interesting thing about that, the program that I was delivering, was a 10-year program. It started in 2003. On that, what, that, what, that estate was one of the areas that had benefited from the money. They'd been over almost £350,000 invested in that time in traditional routes to community development and there wasn't really any evidence of anything that had changed. When we went to the community and we started investing in small projects and bigger projects and connecting with people, that's when change really happened. And it's when you say it as kind of, you know, plainly and simply as you put it, Gary, is. It's so obvious, isn't it? If a community wants to change, the ideas for the change exist within that community. It's very often the resources that are missing to make that change happen, either from a confidence perspective or a financial perspective. And then the people with the resources think that they have to impose their ideas of how those resources should be used on the community. And so really building that bridge between mutual understanding, connection, mining for ideas, and then looking at how resources can be used is almost the sort of secret source (laughs) to that that change really happening and and going, going deeper. Yeah. That whole experience unfolded for me and my team because we were very new and it was like it was it just kept unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. The more learning that we did, um, it started to 
gain its own traction and its own energy. And where in the very early days I was knocking on people's doors, such as organisations, not all of them, but most of them shut the door in my face at the very idea that we could go and talk to people and not have a plan and not have, a, and, and not have some priorities that we needed to meet. And actually I remember one housing officer sat in her office after a conversation, she picked up a piece of white paper, A4 white paper, and threw it across the room at me and said, don't be so ridiculous, you can't go into a community without a plan. I said, well, that's exactly what we're doing. The only plan we've got is to build, to build relationships, connect with people, explore their ideas and see what happens. That's all, that's all, that's that's literally what we we went with to experiment and do something different. And I guess when I look back, if we hadn't have done that, if we hadn't have took that approach, if we hadn't have took that blunt mind and we hadn't have experimented, all of the, the, the abundance is there. It's not, it's not there. It's not not there. It just might not have been generated, you know. And I think I was reading a quote from somebody, I can't quite quite remember who it was before in a, in a book and it says something along the lines of we don't create abundance abundance is already there what we do as humans is we create limitations and i thought that just sparked with me that actually if we keep defining people as problems and places as problems we create the limitations and then the interesting thing is as an organization as a system we then have to solve the problems that we created. <laughs> well, I think, Gary, that is a great, great place for us to um, end our conversation on seeing that abundance is everywhere and it's only the human that creates the, the limitation. And what a, what a beautiful quote. Gary, how can people find out more about the work that you're doing, what you're up to, and get in contact with you? Yeah, they can go to our website, which is ourhappinessfactor.co.uk, and you can see what we're up to presently, where we're coming from, and where we're going from, and all our, all our contact details are on that website too. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for sharing your insights, your experience on the very big topic of community building. So, Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. There were a number of things that I took away from the conversation with Gary, but my real takeaway was that these simple truths that Gary shared can apply in any community, whether it's physical, online, an organization, or a family. How can we listen more to those around us? How can we help them see their own imagination, their own dreams, and really what they'd like to achieve? So what question could you ask of the community that you're part of or communities that you're part of to spark their imagination? And what resources could that community be missing that would be easy to give to them? It could be your time. It could be a smile. It could be something as simple as that. That's all that's needed to spark something different. If you enjoyed this episode and you feel that others might benefit too, please go ahead and share it. You can do that at generativeleaders.co or wherever you get your podcasts. I look forward to being with you on the next episode of Generative Leaders.